Hello and welcome to Pulp from Beyond the Veil. My name is Cody Sullivan and thank you for being with us. Well folks, it's been a wild ride. A little over a year ago I decided to embark on an ambitious effort to start a little horror podcast. I never anticipated how much it would grow, the amount of quality work so many friends of mine have put in, and how well it has been received. There has been a lot of changes to the format, and there have been times of creative flow and times of quagmire. Now, ten episodes later, we've reached the stunning conclusion of the first season of Pulp. We are so happy to have you with us. Without you, the listeners, we may as well be speaking to the wind. So come with us one more time into a world of fantasy and dread as we pull back the veil that separates the natural from the supernatural. This is Pulp. Now let's begin. We begin today right where we left off in episode 9, All Snowed In. What started as a simple holiday-themed housewarming slowly devolved into something far more sinister. Two men are dead, a woman wounded, and the discovery of a black magic grimoire in the host's bedroom is the only clue to the mystery. With the book in one hand and a pistol in the other, John Ramchick is determined to solve the mystery of the ritual that has already begun. That is where we begin this week. In All Snowden, Part 2. I found this little grimoire upstairs in your bedroom. Now you have exactly three seconds to start telling me what you're planning to do with us, or so help me, I will kill you where you stand. John, don't! Three. You cannot be serious! Two. Has everyone lost their damn mind? One. Wait. If you give me a chance, I'll tell you everything. What happened to Derek, why we summoned you all here tonight, why I can't call the police. I'll tell you if you only let me. Please, let's hear what he has to say. John's white knuckles gripped the pistol tightly as he stared into Ryan's cold eyes. He felt the pinpricks of sweat trickle down his forehead. He had always felt safer when he was carrying his concealed weapon, but now, in the moment... He really hoped he wouldn't have to use it. Okay, Ryan. Where do we begin? If you follow me to the basement, I'll show you what happened to Derek. Blair was lying on the bed in the guest bedroom with an ice pack pressed against her nose. Despite the tissues crammed in her nostrils, small tricklings of blood could be seen on her lips. Melissa sat beside her on the bed, soothing her sister and holding her hand. Do you think the bleeding stopped? I don't know. I can't tell. Let me have a look. Uh, I'd keep some pressure on it. Tilt your head back. That'll help. I still can't believe he's dead. 
Mel, Ryan killed someone. What are you gonna do? Shh. It's okay. We'll figure it out. Right now, all I need from you is to stay calm and let me take care of you, okay? Melissa got up from the bed and moved to a desk where she had placed a bottle of blue curacao and two shot glasses. I know you said you didn't want another drink, but given the circumstance, Blair, I think we could both use one right now. Is that blue curacao? Gross. Do you remember the time we stole that uh, bottle from Mom's pantry? Uh, Man, we must have been like 13 and 14. (laughs) Yeah, I do remember that, actually. We drank it right from the bottle, and when it was all gone, I got sick and you took care of me. With her back to Blair, Melissa silently opened the top drawer of the desk. She gently placed a bottle of Drano next to the other bottle. And look at us now. I'm still taking care of you. She had poured one shot of curacao and splashed a bit into the other glass. Yeah, I guess you're right. Thank you. She topped off the other glass with Drano, silently admiring the similarity in pale blue color. She slipped the Drano back into the drawer and shut it. What are big sisters for? Here you go. Just what the doctor ordered. Thank you, Mel. I'm sorry things between us have gotten so strained. You're still my sister. And that's what we'll toast to. To sisters. To sisters. Ah. Delicious. (coughs) Mel, (coughs) what was that? (coughs) What did you do? In an instant, Melissa was on top of her. She Uh. grasped a pillow and forced it down over Blair's reddening face. Muffled screams and choking gasps filled the room as Blair flailed and kicked wildly. Melissa leaned all her weight over the pillow that was suffocating her sister. Rage fueled her strength as she felt blood coursing through her veins, pulsing with every beat of her wicked heart. She pushed and pushed against the pillow, driving her sister's head deeper down against the mattress. The smell of vomit filled the room as it leaked out from under the pillow. After a minute of struggling... Melissa felt Blair's resistance weakening, and the gurgled, choking sounds slowed. And after five minutes, Blair was dead. You were never fit to be a mother. The three men entered the basement and descended the steps. Ryan was first, followed by John with the gun and James bringing up the rear. The book you found is called... The Rites and Rituals of Elder Dead. It's been in my possession for the last three years after finding it in an old bookstore in London. I've spent this time translating it as best I can, and I think I found something that would be invaluable to Mel and I. Does this have anything to do with the seven-pointed star on the page that you had earmarked? Yes. It is a ritual. A fertility ritual. Okay, forget all that shit. Where is... Derek! Just a little farther. Ryan led them through an open doorway in the basement, opposite the mini-fridge. Had they looked over, James and John would have seen a great circle of blood-soaked sand before it. The group passed through the doorway and into a room so dark that they could barely see. 
save for the circle of candles surrounding a seven-pointed star drawn in the sand by poured salt. At each of the star's tips, there was a mason jar. Even in the dim candlelight, John could see that three of the jars contained a dark black liquid. Derek is dead. See? Over there. The two turned to look, and in the darkness they could make out a black shape on the ground. Occasionally, a stray flicker of candlelight illuminated the bloody face of Derek, whose eyes were wide open in silent terror, and the pickaxe that stuck into the side of his head. Shit! We're gonna die down here, man. Maybe you should shoot him. We're not through yet. Each of us is here tonight for a reason, a very special reason. We are all arbiters of sin. We exemplify and embody the traits associated with the seven deadly sins. Bullshit. You stupid bastard. Can't you see? You with your braggadocious stories of how great you are, how much better you were than me. I know you too well, John Ramchick. There isn't a humble bone in your body. Pride. And James? Look at you. You moved away from the small town that was holding you back and got what you've always been after. Money. I remember when you were a snot-nosed little shit wearing my hand-me-down sneakers to school, but I bet that just killed you. You always wanted more. 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 And when you finally got it, I knew you'd want to come back to show off just how well-off you are now. All I had to do was grease the wheels with an offhand remark about the number of vacant properties in the area, and you'd come running to see if there's a penny to be earned. Greed. That fat shit rotting in the corner lured a man with the promise of pizza. Can you believe it? Gluttony. That fucking pervert dead upstairs. Lust. And Melissa and I, Envy and Roth. It is written that if a woman copulates within the seven-pointed star anointed with the blood of all the arbiters of sin present, she is certain to conceive a beautiful, healthy baby boy. Can you even hear yourself? You actually believe this shit enough to kill for it? To kill all of us? We were your friends and family, Ryan, not pawns in your sick fairy tale. And what about Blair? She was a sloth until the day she died. Melissa ran the kitchen knife across James's throat so roughly that it tore into his neck and was stuck for a moment. She struggled to free the blade as James slumped forward, taking her to the floor. Ryan let out a howl as he lunged at John, who was distracted by Melissa's attack on James. Ryan's hand grasped the barrel of the pistol as he struck John in the chin with a deftly aimed punch. The two men became tangled together as they, too, collapsed to the floor. John tore at the gun, desperate not to lose control, knowing full well what would happen if he lost it. He rolled on top of Ryan and pulled at the gun with both hands. He could see Melissa had almost gotten the knife loose from James's throat, and with a final tug, she freed the blade. Her hands were red and slick with blood, and the blade flew out of her hands and scuttled onto the floor, obscured by darkness. 
She felt around on the ground for the blade. Ryan let out a grunt as he brought his knee up into John's groin. The pain racked his body as Ryan was finally able to pull the gun away from his fingertips. With a darting glance, John saw the blade glint in the flickering candlelight for only a moment. Melissa saw it too, and together they both lunged for the knife. John got there first and grasped the hilt tightly. With Melissa in arm's reach, he grabbed her roughly and stood up with his free arm around her neck as he pressed the tip of the blade against her temple. He looked at Ryan, who had gotten to his feet as well, and was standing immobilized in front of him, gun pointed at the two of them. Drop the gun or I'll kill her, Ryan, and all of your work for this sick fantasy will be for nothing. Don't test me. Shoot me and you'll hit her. Ryan's eyes looked from Melissa to John, then back to Melissa's. It was hard to tell in the darkness, but John thought it looked like he was smiling. Darling... Do you trust me? <laughs> of course, sweetheart. Good. The bullet struck Melissa's left shoulder and went through the other side and lodged itself into John's chest. He let out a gasp as Melissa shrugged him off. He fell to his knees, hand pressed against the smoking bullet hole just below his heart. He looked up to see Ryan no longer smiling, but instead standing only a foot away and baring his teeth, which shone in the candlelight. See you in hell, you arrogant prick. The first shot exploded John's head as the body fell back onto the floor. Ryan's eyes were wild as he pumped the body full of bullets. When he was done, he let the gun fall to the floor. Melissa, holding her shoulder grimacing, walked over to him and embraced him, burying her face into the crook of his neck. We did it, love. It's all over. I'm sorry things turned out like this. I wish there was another way. Shh, shh, shh. We did what we had to do. Nothing else matters. I love you. I love you, too. Three weeks later, the snow had melted, revealing dark, muddy patches of barren earth. Outside the country home, two police cruisers and an ambulance were parked with their siren lights on. When the detective walked in, he was struck by how normal the home seemed. It was clean, well-furnished, and yet somehow felt sinister. He knew from experience to trust the feeling in his gut when something felt wrong. He entered the kitchen where he found his partner already surveying the scene. So, what do we got? Not much. We've searched the whole house and found no signs of struggle or anything. Got a missing kitchen knife and some possible blood splatter in the living room. No sign of the homeowners either, huh? Right. We got a call from one of the homeowner's mothers a few weeks ago, saying that her daughter left her child in her care for the night while she visited her sister for a housewarming party. When she didn't return the next day, the mother called us and we sent an officer over. He claims that both homeowners were present, but there were no cars in the driveway and that the homeowner said that everyone had left the previous morning and they hadn't heard from anyone since. 
Was he able to look around a house at all? No, unfortunately. When he asked to come inside, the gentleman at the door refused to let him in without a warrant. It's taken us three weeks of investigating with no sign of the five missing persons that attended this party to drum up enough cause to obtain a warrant. Looks like they're long gone now. Looks like clothes are missing, as are the homeowner's vehicles. I did notice some freshly dug dirt in the basement, and I have a crew of guys down there now to start digging. My guess is we find our missing guests all in one place. I see. You're probably right. Did you find anything else? Just one thing. What do you make of this? He held up a large plastic evidence bag. Inside the bag was a pregnancy test. Even from where he was standing, the detective could see two red stripes boldly showing. We interrupt this broadcast to give you an exclusive scoop from our very own Pulp News Network. Good evening and thank you for tuning in. I'm Tom Cryer, and tonight we bring you stories from all over the Planar Kingdoms. We begin tonight in the fantasy plane of Diadrama, where PNN journalist Pam Pringle brings us an exclusive look into the kitchen and mind of Chef Umamau Uruk as we ask him about his work and how he took his diner from Greasy Spoon to a Hragar wheel-winning restaurant. Pam Pringle has the scoop. This walk-in needs to get de-iced twice a day, every fucking day, or it don't work. Working in this kitchen's a bit like chasing chariots. Once you've caught up to one, another one flies right past you, and off you go again. Umamo Uruk has been chef-owner of Gristlebit's restaurant for just over 30 years. When he first purchased the restaurant, he remembers the rent was just five gold pieces. It was five gold pieces for the first ten years, and I remember thinking back then it was too much. About twenty years back it went up to ten, and now it's almost thirty. Gods, those slumlords get fat off of bleeding chumps like me dry while they sit in their mansions in the Cloud District, drinking their galvish reds and kissing each other's asses. Could you hand me that cilantro, please? Nevertheless, it is his attention to detail and strong personality that keeps people coming back. I mean, what I'm doing isn't exactly high sorcery, right? I see a gnome walk in, and I know he's going to want sugar cakes. Elf comes in and make a mixed green salad with spring mushrooms, dried plums, and goat cheese. Human comes in before fucking over the entire ecosystem, beheading Imperium prisoners, and starts his day with chocolate chip pancakes and bacon. Hell, if you ain't a regular here, I don't even see your face. Just another dish to make. And I gotta be here seven days a week or the food ain't right. I tell my son every day he gets a little worse. Now, he's not a bad kid, but he doesn't have the experience that I got. Customers come in and sidle into warm booths or wooden chairs by the window to the kitchen and wait for their food to be brought out. 
There are no menus, no ordering, and no special request. When asked about his avant-garde approach to dining, Umamo had this to say. It started as a joke, you know. There was one halfling. Actually, he still comes in here. Is he here? Nah. Anyways, he used to come in all the time and order something different off the menu. He said he wanted to try everything I had, and I told him, there's no God's damn way you can try everything I make. Well, sure as shades are see-through, that little hobbit prick worked his way through the entire menu in just over three months. That's when I had all the menus destroyed, so that the next time he came in and went to gloat over his achievement, he found nothing waiting for him except a brand new dish I'd made. Boar sausage wrapped in saffron puff pastry and served on a bed of smoky beans, or some shit like that. Uh, what did he think of that? Well, he cleaned his plate and shut up about the menu after that. Like I said, he still comes in, but each time he does, I give him something different. I'm a half-orc. I don't let halflings get the best of me. While Chef Umama prepared my meal, his mouth never stopped. His gregariousness took me off guard, and I realized you can't judge a half-orc by their more stoic peers. There's this goblin cave a few miles from here. A few years back, they tunneled their way under my kitchen and started stealing scraps. They started small at first, a bit of fish here, and a pound of bacon there, but I remember the last straw was when I came in late one night to find three goblins roasting a neighborhood dog over my cook fire. Well, I grabbed my meat tenderizer and set about them like a devil, and now she's called Goblin Spain. <laughs> anyway, they must have had themselves some kind of orgy or something, because they've infested the tunnels beneath you as something fierce. So now I make a point of dropping by late at night to squash a couple of their skulls with Goblin Spade. It's monotonous, never-ending tedium, just like everything in this business. I'll never get rid of all of them, much like I'll never be done prepping or cooking or ordering. I like killing goblins. I took a seat on a worn stool at the counter and waited for my meal. I didn't know what I expected but I was surprised when Umamau brought me two dishes. One with grilled figs, butter, honeycomb, rock liver pate, and a loaf of freshly baked sourdough. And the other, a cup of fragrant ox consomme. You got stuff to do today, so eat light, all right? Chef, this is the best pate I've ever had. And the warm figs and honey on this bread, it's sublime. And the soup? Consomme, yeah. Yeah, it's good, right? Anyways, uh, enjoy. After the meal, I appreciated his philosophy in spite of not understanding how he does it. I thanked him for the meal and, before I parted, asked him his thoughts on the growing number of fries, burgers, and fries, chains popping up in every neighborhood. I met that hunk of junk construct fry years back when he opened up his first joint. He told me not to worry about his business because we were going after different clientele. What sucks for me is that people go to his place, sit down, get their food in five minutes, and come to expect that from everyone else. I'm not going to compete with a soulless machine over who can churn out shitty food fastest and most consistently. That is not my game. Still, 
If he ever comes in here, I'll rip his arms off and use them to check his oil. Fully satisfied with food and information, I bid Chef Mau Mau farewell and left the Gristle Bits. And although I know he'll have no problem keeping the doors open for years to come, I couldn't help but notice the new fries, burgers, and fries on the corner, or all the customers filling the seats inside. Looks like other than consomme, there could be something else brewing in the neighborhood. Trouble. I'm Pam Pringle. Now back to you, Tom. Thank you, Pam, for the exclusive scoop. Next up, Adventurer's Insurance. Scam or safeguard? More on that after the break. segment of season one, and it is sure to put a smile on your face. Gustav Brift has gifted us with another tremendously clever story that mixes both magic and fantasy with a bit of real-world flair. Apprenticeships can be difficult in the world of might and magic, and Feistablon the Mage's apprenticeship is no different. But. His first task won't be to summon an elemental from the earth around him, or even to help protect the innocent with a flash of color spray. Instead, his task is one of great purpose, albeit slightly mundane and slightly more illegal. Let's enter the mind of Gustav Grift as we transport ourselves to the land of wizards and war beasts. This story is called Bone Roaster. son this is where she said to meet her oh you'll just love you eulania i know it she's so wise and talented you know i really envy you feistablan the son who stood a full head taller than his father did not look enviable the youth slouched so that his long black hair mostly obscured his scowl shoulders like those of an ox slumped forward so much so that the lad's gigantic fist almost dragged the ground He had put on a formal black tunic, from which he had yet to remove the sleeves, and a freshly starched pair of breeches. Sweat poured off the hulking adolescent, soaking the uncomfortable clothing. He was miserable, and everybody but his father knew it. Oh, really? I hadn't heard. Listen, Dad, can't you be a wizard's apprentice? I mean, that's really what this is all about, right? Ha! Teenagers. No, son, I just want you to have the options I never had. Trust me, I'd love nothing more than for the business to turn into Fisher Fisherson and Son's Fish. 
but it's such a big world out there, and you're so capable and curious. Yeah, I'm curious why we're meeting a supposedly great wizard at a shady bazaar. Really getting your money's worth, huh, Dad? The labyrinth of booths and tents in which these two found themselves did indeed exude a less than reputable aura. The booth next to them had a sign which simply read, Killed Fresh, and sat in front of a tent from which emerged the most exotic cacophony of vaguely animalistic utterances. Shady Bazaar, no son, this is the storied Untermarket. You can find things here that people up north haven't even dreamed of. Yeah, it's a real dreamy. Oh, there she is. Hello! Over here, Yuyulania. I'm Fisher Fisherson. We corresponded. It's such an honor to meet you. I just can't express how remarkable an opportunity this is. Uh, for my son, I mean. <clears throat> oh, yes, this is my son, Feistablon Fisherson. Um... Hey. Wow, you're a big one, huh? I've <clears throat> I've uh, heard that, yeah. Ever done any magic, cast any spells, cooked up potions or divined the future from natural portents or rituals? Uh, no. <clears throat> I mean, <clears throat> no, ma'am. Good. Glad to hear it. And just stick to my name, okay? Feistablan? Gods, yours is a mouthful. What language is that? Oh, you know, just a derivative of some old arcane rune-based stuff I read overseas. Dragon, Aklo, that sort of thing. Mm, I see. Well, uh, we got, you know, a lot of work to do. We do? Yeah, you know, uh, wizard and apprentice stuff. Oh, how exciting! Yeah, I mean, it's all very mysterious and per- Proprietary. So, you know, Fisher. Hmm? Oh, oh, I see. Yes, of course. Well, thank you again, Yuyulania. Good luck, my boy. Oh, I just can't wait to hear all about it. Let me know if you need anything. So this is mostly about him, huh? And what gave it away? Well, I just want you to know that I take this seriously. I'm a transmuter. Know what that is? It means I change things. Not make them seem different, but actually change them. Now, all the good changers start with a trade. Something topical. You know, brewing, alchemy, smithing. Three months of that at least before you cast a single spell. Wait, so my dad is giving you gold by the cartload to teach me to make horseshoes? Oh, forgive me, my lord. Is this below your wizardly prowess? No? All right, then. The first principle of changing is that nothing can be that cannot be. Great. This is proving instructional already. Funny. Ha ha. Anyway, one doesn't simply wag one's dick and turn iron to lead. Why would I want to turn iron to lead? We'll save that for after the bloodletting portion of your apprenticeship. Suffice it to say, transmuting is the most practical branch of magic. Real world knowledge will be the foundation of your future magical work. I'm not going to lie to you, though. You're an apprentice, so you're going to get some menial tasks. Is that a problem for you? I guess not. Good. Now that's settled, I've got your first assignment, and I think you're just the person for the job. In the deepest dungeons of the Untermarket is a troll. A big one, too. Goes by Bone Roaster. Bone Roaster? 
I think it might be his professional handle. It can be hard to know with trolls. Anyway, I need you to obtain a certain magical herb for a concoction I'm making. This transaction will require some finesse, as the component in question is not, strictly speaking, legal. Wait, are you asking me to buy drugs for you? <laughs> oh, Vice Diplon, I would never ask you to buy drugs for me. I'm telling you to buy drugs for me. I have a back condition, which requires a very specific pain management regimen. Here, hand him the scroll. He'll know what to do. And in case it all goes bad, though, and I mean, like, really bad, I'm going to have you memorize a spell. Uh, really? Because I thought you just said... I know what I said, smartass, but if shit hits the fan and you think you might have violence done on you, shout the following. Arborus Procurum! Got it? Sure, but what does it do? Let's go ahead and hope you don't have to find out, okay? You're really not ready for that sort of thing yet. This is strictly in case the worst comes to pass. Understood? Good. Now go buy grass from that troll. As the youth shuffled through the marketplace, ever downward and deeper into the cave system it occupied, he was surrounded by sights utterly alien to his understanding of the world. In lightless corners and crevices, wasted and emaciated humans stared blankly from their perches as hideous, gelatinous, or reptilian things in cages and tanks followed his movements menacingly. Occasionally, in his efforts to avoid a given stall, he would wander too close to the one opposite it, and the staring attendant would lurch forward as though spring-loaded. After a while... It stopped being entirely clear to Feistablend what or who was for sale at a given booth and by whom. Light was a fleeting resource once he reached a certain depth. There were at least a few lanterns or torches on each level, though the apprentice often sensed that such illumination was an affront to the vendors, the cost of doing business. Finally, after losing his sense of time in the shadowy depths, Feistabland came to a collapsible wooden table in front of a crevice in the cave wall with bundles of dried herbs on it. Hanging over the table, attached to the ceiling by a chain, and perpetually burning by mysterious means, was an enormous blackened femur. Well, this must be the place. Feistabland picked up a bundle of herbs and gave it a sniff. Rosemary. Suddenly, it felt to the boys that the ground were shaking. Hey, shrimp! A hand the size of a ship's wheel emerged from the opening. It was granite gray, mottled with flecks of violet and green. When it approached the table, Feistablan noted the filthy, curved nails ending in points like talons. An arm followed, long and lean and corded with muscle. Finally, the owner of the appendage emerged. Twice as tall as the towering teenager, the troll's head nearly touched the roof of the cave. He wore nothing, save for a loincloth made from extremely old, roughly cured leather. The whole body was as sinewy as the arms and zigzagged with scars, culminating in an enormous round head with a prominent chin. Pointed ears and pointed tusks emerged from the curtains of matted green hair, and the burning glow of the femur reflected only dully from beady eyes like polished onyx. Um, bone roaster, is it? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Yulania, the wizard. Well, she she told me to give this to you. What is this shit? 
The wizard wouldn't send you with that. I can't read that trash. I mean, it it's the common script. If I took the time to learn to read every language that's been called the common tongue around here, I'd never get anything else done. My great-grandchildren were already ripping limbs by the time that nonsense came to these shores. Well, the scroll just said to hook Eulania up with a certain herb for pain management, which, for good reason, I don't see on this table. And why would she send a pup like you? I'm her apprentice. Any more questions, or can I get what I came here for and get out? Sorry. No can do, Tyke. I got no reason to believe you're who you say you are. Smells like bacon around here, if you ask me. Feistablend saw the tusks bared in what must have been a threat or a wry smile. All right. So you don't want to sell. How about a contest? You under people are always up for things like that, right? If I win, you sell me the grass. How about... Feistablen looked about him and saw little that inspired confidence. Finally, his eyes alighted on the barrels which sat unopened at a neighboring stall. Drinking. Ha! Very well. I'll go first. Bone Roaster shot his gnarled arm out, grabbing one of the enormous kegs in his hand and popping the top off with his thumb, like a child decapitating dandelions. He shook the last drop from the barrel and belched. So, your turn then. The boy thought about what he had just seen, imagining that he might be able to drink a quarter keg of small beer given the time. Wine would be another story. What was in the barrel? The troll gestured to the rubbery, vaguely humanoid creature with a cephalopod head and a mass of writhing tentacles where its mouth ought to have been. Hey! Tentacle tits! What did I just drink? <laughs> what, what did he... What did they say? <laughs> Paint thinner! Um... I think I'll pass. No way, Welp. You can't back out after I already drank. Wouldn't be in the spirit of the game now. Drink. Feistablen shuffled over to the booth, shrugging at the proprietor. The squid thing rattled an octagonal metal container and coins jingled. The apprehensive apprentice fished through his pockets, throwing coppers in as he found them. When he had tossed in nine, the creature poured him a vial of clear fluid from a small cask on his stand. It stared watery-eyed and gurgled in a way that vaguely resembled laughter. Raising the container, fumes singed the boy's nostrils, but he wasn't keen to find out personally whether or not Bone Roaster was merely the troll's professional moniker. He took a small sip. Immediately, Feistablan's lunch of fried haddock lurched in his stomach, jumping to the back of his throat. Bone Roaster looked on with crossed arms completely unmoved. The boy took another sip, bigger this time. In a torrent of half-digested fish and chips, his stomach was emptied onto the cave floor. When he recovered and realized that he had not in fact turned himself inside out, the troll and the cephalopod were doubled over as well, but with laughter. Having failed in his task, Feistablen opted to try an entirely new method, subterfuge. <coughs> 
You win. Enjoy a laugh and have a nice life. You, you jerk-offs! After some reconnaissance, the apprentice decided that the only course of action was to try to lure the troll away from his cave by creating a distraction. Some of your shitty rosemary. See how you like that. <clears throat> God's below! He's stealing herbs from that table! Feistablan, who had spent a few silver pieces to buy a burlap cloak and some grease paint, and who was feigning an incredibly pronounced limp, listened for the sound of the troll emerging from the cave. You'll pay for that, vermin! Fuck, 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 fuck! The first stage of the plan had worked. Drawing from knowledge gained upon departing the herb stand with his tail between his legs, the dodging and dodgy young man wove through gaps formed by booths and tables, and which he hoped would be just slightly too small for the towering troll to traverse. The quarry lost sight and sound of its hunter in the tumult that ensued, with Feistablan leaving shoppers, vendors, and a diverse array of rare and perilous merchandise scattered in his wake. Neither seeing nor hearing the troll, Feistablan slipped into a small crack in the stone walls that he had found while casing the area. He quickly tore off his rough cloak, wiped his face cleanish with it, and discarded it before emerging back into the bazaar, praying to nobody in particular that he looked nonchalant as he sauntered up to Bone Roaster's table. Who's the asshole now? <laughs> Bone Roaster? Thinks I'll just let myself in, since it looks like you're busy. <laughs> Dark and unwholesomely warm, the den reeked of troll musk, cat piss, and carrion. Feistablan's eyes slowly adjusted to the lightless dwelling. All about him were poorly cured hides and haunches of meat. In one corner were piled up several skins, apparently from enormous iridescent cave bears, each with a different number of twisted appendages. Seeing few hiding places, Feistablan decided to rifle through his uncouth bedding. The stench was almost unbearable, but was quickly joined by a sweet, earthy smell when a full leather satchel was revealed. Ha! Gotcha. I could say the same of you, twerp! The troll moved into the crevice, dragging behind him the table which had held his herbs. This he hurled with spectacular force at the back wall, shattering it just above Feistablan's ah, It's bad practice to rifle through a person's bedding, boy! Could find something really nasty in there! Ah. With the troll charging at him, Feistablan changed tactics again this time to something that felt comfortable to him in a way that wagering or sneaking about never could. Physical violence. But as Feistablan rushed to meet the troll's charge, aiming his hairy knuckles squarely at the troll's groin, his arm was grabbed mid-swing. He felt himself lifted from the ground as Bone Roaster's claws gouged into his meaty arms. The troll spun in circles again and again before letting go, hurling the boy into the stone wall, where he fell dazedly, into a crumpled heap. Listen, kid, I didn't want any trouble, but you couldn't take a hint, could you? Tell you what, though, I can't let this one slide. Any last words? Yeah. I didn't want to have to do it, but you made me. You're in for it now, son of a bitch. Our birds procurum! Bone Roaster stopped simply staring, his heart still pounding in his chest and his breathing rapid, his beady eyes widened. 
What the fuck did you just say to me? You heard me, asshole. Our purse procurum! What's so funny? What? Why are you laughing? <laughs> you dumbass! Why didn't you just say that earlier? I, I'm not supposed to do magic yet. Eulania said only in an emergency. Ha, kid! You got had. Our burst procurum is nothing but code, see? After all, I can't just sell to anybody. This stuff's illegal. <laughs> Anyway, kid, here you go. I'll put it on the wizard's tab. Gee, thanks. Oh, hey, um, sorry. I, I mean, I guess. I, I'm sorry about throwing you around like that. Also for the, the blood, and uh, it looks like you the wrist might be uh, broken anyway. I'm, uh, I'm sorry, I, I guess. Y- yeah, just don't, don't mention it. Feistabland made his way to the narrow passage where his burlap cloak lay undisturbed. He put it on and obscured the satchel of wizard weed beneath it. Tottering and freshly concussed, he limped through one wrong turn after another, eventually making his way to the ground level of the Untermarket. Yuulania was sitting in a food court eating stuffed pita bread coated in orange powder. I see you've been up to some very important business. No, not really. But you had some trouble by the look of it. What took so long? Yeah, it it didn't go so great. Turns out there was a code I was supposed to lead with. You wouldn't happen to know anything about that. Oh, don't sound so indignant. This is standard apprentice stuff, kid. A test of your will or something like that. I wouldn't want to cheat you out of the full experience. Still, looks like you passed. Sular's taint, though. Look at you. What, did you try and fight him or something? No. Really? Well, that was fucking stupid. The transmuter pulled open the bag of contraband in the middle of the circle of food carts, rolled a generous pinch of its contents in paper, and lit the end of it with a match. Yeah. Tell me about it. Listen, you, Yulania, I'm not sure I can... No. Really, though, if this is what it's going to... Really, though, not right now. Mama needs her medicine. Oh, damn, though. You really do look like shit. We've done it at long last. Season one is in the books. We hope you've enjoyed our content over the year, and though we'll celebrate this season with a little time off, we'll soon be back with more tales for your express entertainment purposes. Season two of Pulp from Beyond the Veil will look to build on the foundation we've set here, and we promise to continue growing this program to the best it can possibly be. A big shout-out to everyone who has contributed to the show this past year. Thank you to all the amazing voice actors. Chris Goulet, Mo Wirth, Zachary Richardson, 
Zach Dow, Jamie Danner, Carrie Cantera, Dominic Vonka, Zachary Husband, Daniel Tui, Sarah Liptrot, Grace Newbold, Davis McGraw, Devin Marquez, Christopher McLean, Kyle Washburn, Chelsea Richardson, Jason Beaton, Cody Sullivan, Shelby Taylor, and Will Oaken. Special thanks to the artists who helped make Pulp look terrifyingly beautiful, Amanda Gay and David Howe. Stories were written by Gustav Grift and C.A. Sullivan. Editing and mixing thanks to Cody Sullivan and Chris Goulet. Huge thank you to our first Patreon supporter, Dominic, whose tremendous contribution has helped us advertise the program and whose gift of a new microphone helped to improve audio quality dramatically. And an equally gracious thank you to our second Patreon supporter, Will Oaken. This program is still very much in its infancy and every dollar helps us grow. If you would like to submit an original story to be featured in the coming Season 2 of Pulp, please contact us at pulpfrombeyondtheveil at gmail.com. Any questions or feedback can be sent there as well. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and check in with our website for blog entries in the off-season between Season 1 and 2. The sun has set on this season, plunging us into unfamiliar darkness, But it is our sincerest hope that when the sun rises again, you'll be there to greet us with eager ears. Thank you for listening. I'm Cody Sullivan. Until next time, signing off.